Well, we're into finishing up Philippians today and uh, finishing up chapter uh, with chapter four. Death. A story is told about Death, who was walking towards a man who stopped him, and he asked, "What are you going to do?" And Death said, "I am going to kill ten thousand people." And the man said, "That's horrible," but Death said, "That's the way it is. That's what I do." And as the day passed, the first man. Uh, warned everybody that he saw about what death's plan was. And at the end of the day, he met death again. And he said, you said you were going to kill 10,000 people, but you killed 100,000 people. And death explained, I only killed 10,000 people. Worry and fear killed the others. How's that for crazy? Worry is one of the biggest problems I think that we face in life. And the reality is, is psychologists will tell you that it gets worse as you get older. So that's something to look forward to, right? (laughs) Charles Mayo, who was uh, the founder of the Mayo Clinics in uh, Rochester, New York, said that worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, the whole nervous system, and profoundly affects the health. Corey Ten Boom, I don't know if you know of her, a World War II uh, prisoner of war, said um, as she knew the destructive power of worry, she wrote, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Hmm. That preach, right? Let me say that again. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Corey Ten Boom. Do you ever engage in the imaginary what if? What if? Do you ever blow things up in your mind by jumping to conclusions or making a mountain out of a molehill? Have you ever looked at a dilemma and imagined the worst case scenario? I do that. I so I, I so um, plan the things out in my mind. I'll say this, and then they'll say this, and then I'll do this, and then, you know, I I do that in my mind. I plan it all out. And if you engage in any of these draining, negative mind games, then you need to know that God's plan for you and for me is joy, not worry. That's God's plan. That's his message in Philippians 4. His plan for you is rest, not stress. And it's peace and not turmoil. In this last uh, part of Philippians, this last lesson in Philippians, we're going to learn how to keep worry from robbing us of our joy. And we're going to discover how to have peace and joy in our relationships with God and with others. Because I think, I think that what Philippians 4 is talking about is joy in relationships. Joy in relationships. Paul has this joy in this friendship that he is with these Philippians. His first uh, verse that he wrote in this first part of Philippians 4 says, Therefore, my brethren, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand. Firm in the Lord, dear friends. He calls them his joy and his crown. He calls them brothers and dear friends. They're equals. They're not inferiors. And he tells them how much he loves them. 
I love you, you whom I love, and how he longs to be with them. His friendship with them is real. And he points to the previous three chapters that he's talked about um, when he says, therefore. That therefore goes back to everything he's already said. Because of all of that, he says, therefore, this is the reason to maintain a firm foundation. Because of all that, this is how you should stand, firm in the Lord. And I love, somebody said um, that they thought that the uh, punctuation was wrong in this because it, I normally read this verse, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear, one, dear friends. But I thought, as I was reading that this yesterday, I thought, it's different. It should say, that is how you should stand, comma, firm in the Lord, right? Because what he has talked about in the previous three chapters is how we stand firm in the Lord. Deeper spirituality can and will come for them, the church at Philippi, and for us if we do what Paul is about to tell us. He's going to say, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to, to act. And then he went on to talk about two women in the church, joy in unity. He says, I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And he urges them to have joy in unity, probably by using this, these two women who were having problems, two women in the church who couldn't get along. How'd you like to be called out by Paul? <laughs> Not a, and remember, nobody in the Bible knew they were in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, I, I may have been called out once when I was in high school in church, and I, my best friend Carol and I um, were probably not, not paying attention to the sermon as we should have, and so the pastor mentioned our names. In the middle of the sermon. In the middle of the sermon and told us to stop messing around. I thought you said he said shut up. Oh, he wouldn't have said shut up, honey. Okay. No, that would have. Been. But in but the middle of the sermon, in the middle he calls him out by name. And my friend, my parents did not go to church, so I was like, well, "This is not bad." But my friend Carol's mother was there, and so she Ruby. She couldn't. She got in big trouble. <laughs> I never mentioned it to my parents. So, so. then, <laughs> then they couldn't sit with each other because right. Ruby wouldn't let Carol sit with that rabble rouser. Right. So we sat across from each other. We had kind of, it was a kind of a uh, half circle. So she sat over here and I sat over here and we just like make faces at each other across. So it didn't, it didn't stop much. It just kept us quieter, which is probably the whole thing. So anyway, so getting back to that, called out <laughs> this conflict. Conflict really, let's face it, conflict is inevitable. It's inevitable in a marriage. It's inevitable inevitable. Um, in a friendship, and it's inevitable among, inevitable among Christians. The problem is very few Christians know how to be peacemakers. Very few Christians know how to handle conflict appropriately. Jesus' instructions on how to handle 
conflict is one of the most neglected passages of Scripture. We don't really like to do what he is asking us to do when we deal with conflict. Families implode. Leadership teams fall apart. Churches split because of the lack of conflict resolution skills. In our marriage, I usually go toward conflict. It's not that I love conflict. It's just that I'm kind of drawn towards it. I like to expose conflict. I kind of just like to get everybody talking about it. <laughs> Matt, on the other hand, is a conflict avoider. So he runs from conflict. Headed off at the pass. He, no, no, no. It's don't deal with it, and it'll just, you know, everybody, it's peace at any price. Let's just cover it. That was my grandma's Let's motto. Let's just cover it. So we have conflict in the way we handle conflict. That is true. Because I'm like, and he's like back. So anyway, so we've got these When we were first conflicts. married and we had a disagreement, um, she would say, why don't you fight back? And I was like, I don't know how. It was just like that. It was. It was just like that. So I'm not going to, we're not going to stand up here and tell you how to handle conflict because we don't do it incredibly well. It's, it's that a, must, yeah. miss that one next year. But what we're going to do is learn about what Paul is talking about alongside of each other. Because I, I really love what he has to say. Paul urged Yodia and Syntyche to agree with each other. That's what he said. I plead with those two to agree with each other in the Lord. Right? To agree with each other in the Lord. Don't argue your point. Don't insist you're right. Just agree that you're both entitled to how you feel and where you are. Don't try to get that. I'm always trying to get Matt to see my point. And, uh, oh, and, and I to, see it all right. And to be, I, and I'm always right. <laughs> and Matt said, I, I knew I married Mrs. Wright. I, I just didn't know her first name was always. That's right. <laughs> so I do say that. So for the sake of the relationship, right? For the sake of the relationship, agree with the other person, okay? That will do what? it. I know, right? That just doesn't make any sense. But that's what he says. He says it right there. Agree with each other. In the Lord. In the Lord. For the sake of the relationship, agree with the other person. Because if you, you can't have a conflict and agree with the other person at the same time. So he says, just agree. It, it's not necessarily avoiding the conflict. You understand that there's a conflict, but choosing to agree with the other person. And then Paul goes on to say, um, uh-oh, I lost where I was. Then Paul encouraged someone. Oh, there he is. You, he's, he encouraged someone. We don't know who that lo loyal yoke fellow is. But he says, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, it could have been a person, could have been the whole church there. Could have been deities. To help these women who have contended in my sight. Help them. Help them in this, this disagreement that was tearing apart. 
Paul wanted someone else to go in and help repair the relationship. Like those two women could agree, but then they needed somebody to come alongside of them. And the reality is, is that Paul understood more of psychology than probably we give him credit for. And he understood the need for sometimes there to be a third party, some kind of a mediator, somebody to help bring those two together so that they could have um, agreement on where they are. I think it's interesting that he's saying both of these women contended at my side. They fought with me the good fight of the gospel, of, of sharing the gospel. They worked alongside with me. And then he goes on to say what he's been saying all along, rejoice. Rejoice. Have joy. And he says, let your gentleness be evident. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And then verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Jesus was described as gentle, or described himself really as gentle. In Matthew 11, uh, 28 to 30, he says this, one of our favorite verses, mm. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And here's where he says, For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my lo load is light. It says, let your gentleness, your gentleness be evident to all. One neat thing, the word for gentleness is really similar to meekness. And the Greek word for that is, is bridled, like a horse is bridled. And the, so it's bridled strength. I think the best way for, uh, that I've seen it illustrated is... Um, I like to exercise and go to the gym and I like to lift weights and run some. And if you put 200 pounds on a bar, who can move that bar more gently? The weaker person who's like, <laughs> or the stronger person who can move it gently? You know, gentleness takes an incredible amount of strength. It's so, just not what we're used to thinking of. How do you think that gentleness um, might improve the likely, likelihood of a uh, peaceful resolution in a conflict? How would being gentle? Good. Patient. Patient. Mm-hmm. Gentleness helps both in touch with the bigger picture. Gentleness doesn't yeah. encourage opposition. I mean, I can totally see how gentleness would fit in there. And I am not, by nature, a gentle person. Oh, honey. You know, I'm just like, I, I put both <laughs> feet down, you know, and I'm like. Well, here's what I say. G usually in an argument, the person with the louder voice has the weaker argument. He doesn't say that in the argument. <laughs> he better not. <laughs> but I think there's something to it. Oh, I totally agree. Which is... <laughs> <laughs> I got I mean, witnesses. I, but it's I, recording. I don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't agree 
agree because you said it. I agree because <laughs> I agree because God said it. I agree. <laughs> I agree because it's right here, and you and you, the only reason you said it was because I read it. So, so the, this whole idea of gentleness in conflict, and then the whole idea: do we, do you, do I um, display gentleness? And can we learn to display gentleness in conflict? Mm -hmm. My guess is that I'm not the only one. I know that because somebody else put both foot feet down. And <laughs> I, I'm not the only person who responds like that. Um, so can I, can I start to um, pray for gentleness to be part of how I respond in conflict? And the re reality is, is that conflicts often threaten a relationship. I mean, that's really what, what more threatens a relationship than conflict. And so as a result of the conflict, then, what we experience is fear and anxiety and anger and frustration. Those are the things that come from conflicts. So I love how Philippians 4 goes on in verse 6. And I never put this all together. But in verse 6, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is just one of the most awesome paragraphs in Scripture, those verses. The gentle, gentle approach can be so powerful. Well, we don't often awesome. associate verse 6 and 7 with peacemaking. Be anxious for nothing. But that's really how Paul um, is presenting it. These verses can apply to different situations, but the immediate context of these verses involve, con involve conflict. And I love that because when I'm in conflict, I am anxious. My... my I'm just all in turmoil when, I, when there is conflict. And what I need is peace. And what I need is the peace of God that transcends all understanding. So what does Paul say 
uh, tell, what does he tell us to do when we're experiencing conflict? Pray. Mm. Pray. Lay it down. Pray. What kinds of prayers would lead to a healthier peacemaking process? What kind of prayers would we be praying if we were for relinquishment? Mm, prayers right. of relinquishment. Right, right. Perfect. Opening yeah. our eyes to somebody else's perspective and where they are. What other kinds of prayers might, why, might we be doing? Oh, great. Humility on both sides. Good. Forgiveness, right? Mm -hmm. Forgiving me for holding on so tightly to my rights that I can't possibly give it up for the sake of the relationship. Thanksgiving is such a good perspective grantor, isn't it? Why would he ask us to pray with Thanksgiving in a conflict? What can you be thankful for? God is in God. control. God, right. God. God, right. God is in control. God knows, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I just, I, it just kind of opened my eyes reading this, um, putting this all together for me, because I love that verse, and I don't like to, to quote it necessarily in conflict, but I need a way in my life to get outside of those conflicts. I need a way to deal, when I have conflict with people, to, to, to find a way, you know, back in to... To a, a good relationship, but not only just him, because we're in covenant relationship, right? So, I mean, I, sometimes I think, well, what's what's he gonna do? Leave me, you know? So he's stuck Ooh. here. So, but, so you know, I, I'm not nearly as concerned about our conflict as I am. I mean, I don't mean that like I'm not concerned, but but I, you know, we're we're in this together. But what about conflict with people in the church? What about conflicts with people in my family? How do I handle those, you know, um, the ones that I can walk away from easily and just go, I don't care. I don't care what you think, I'm, you know. So those are the ones that I even need this more for those. And then Paul tells us, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, gentleness takes strength.
That's a great, yeah. <laughs> a lot of shaking. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Right. A great word to think about that, that I use a lot with pastoral counseling is the idea of traction. When someone comes to see me, they've ju they just have lost traction when it's bad enough to say, can I come see you and make an appointment? And if you can think about what could, what could I do to help me gain traction bit by bit, and it may be an inch at a time traction in whatever area, whether it's the worry or whether it's the conflict management or forgiveness, um, and part of what you're talking about is what we've talked about, what we talked about yesterday, that it's just pressing on, right? And it's forgetting, uh, forgetting how I reacted to him yesterday, uh, this morning, and, 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 and pressing on. This and morning wasn't bad. <laughs> this morning was great. Because <laughs> the baby didn't cry so much. So we're just, it's just pressing on, right? And that's what you're talking about, that just, you know, because I'm not going to turn around and be like, angels wings sprouting and you know because I get this whole conflict resolution but I can do I can respond right once and then if I do it once then I can respond right twice Yeah. Amen. And you know, like like you, I'm with him, you know. Not like him. Yeah, Don't yeah. say they yeah. Know what right. <laughs> One last thing on, on this idea of how to begin tackling it. That was that was brilliant. I love this group. One of the things that helped me so much, and I was laughing about this with somebody early in the week, and I can't remember who, but it, it was Eleanor Roosevelt that said, when it comes to dealing with conflict, Eleanor Roosevelt said, you wouldn't worry so much about what other people think of you 
if you realized how seldom they do. Isn't that good? That's good. <laughs> it's making him feel better already. <laughs> so here we go. So let's keep going. We've got this, this whole idea of, uh, of living in joy in the midst of conflict. And Paul tells us then how to have this mindset that's really going to revolutionize our peacemaking process. Because remember, this all goes together. It's all about urging Yodia and Syntyche to live to agree with each other. So he goes on to have this mindset. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice in the God of peace. He, mm. the God of peace making, the God of peace maker, the God of peace will be with you. That is going to, uh, those things are going to, uh, revolutionize our peacemaking process. What does he say those things are in verse 8? Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, right? Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, anything that's excellent or praiseworthy. What does he say? Think about those things. What do we dwell on when we're in conflict? Oh, man, we're just like, you know, I can't get, I can't get out of the negative sometimes. And I think that, and I'm not even Do you even mean like negative people. things about me? Oh, no, honey. There's nothing negative about you. I'm, no, about, but I just spiral, right, sometimes. And I'm not, I think there are people worse than me who spiral. I mean, who spiral worse than I do. But, you know, you can't, sometimes you just can't let it go. I can't, I'm so wounded, I'm so hurt, I want, I'm so like off offended or whatever, I can't let it go. I've got to not dwell on those things. Paul says don't, just don't dwell on those things. Because when we experience conflict, we've got to get out of those. How could meditating on those things in verse 8 facilitate a much healthier uh, peacemaking process? Mm. How would it? Absolutely, absolutely, focusing on the positive. <coughs> you can't think negative thoughts with positive thoughts, all, you know, right? Because they can't. You gotta, we've got to stop dwelling on the negative. And then in verse 9, Paul gives us one, one more way um, for the church at Philippi to be skilled at peacemaking when he says, whatever you have learned from me or seen in me, put into practice. Paul says, just do what I've done. Emulate me. And I wonder if you can think of someone in your life, in your life now, that you can emulate. Is there somebody you know that handles uh, conflict well? Can you do what they do? Can you try to be like them? Whether you're an avoider or you're a conflict seeker, is there somebody that you can emulate? Paul says, 
put into practice what you've seen me do. Yike, I would never, <laughs> I don't know that I would tell my kids to do that. <laughs> you know, just handle conflict the way I do. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> We're in for, yeah, yeah, we don't. So, that whole idea. It's amazing how the one issue makes me see these last two paragraphs in such a new way with new eyes. I, I love when you get to go back and reread something like that and how the idea of the conflicts informs what Paul says when he says rejoice in the Lord always the midst of all of that. That's powerful. Well, I wanted to um, pick us up in verse 10 where Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. I don't think he was saying you should have been supporting me all along. He was, they were supporting him for so much of the time. But back in those days, can you imagine just trying to find out where Paul was? You know, and so finally they realized, oh, my gosh, he, he's in Rome, in prison. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. We're going to dive into this a little bit. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yeah. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Here's the deal. Paul is not talking about a football banner. In 4.13, that's kind of one of those, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul's rotting away in prison. Paul's not talking about victory necessarily. He's talking about survival. Think of it this way. Paul had no idea when the keys rattled or the door opened to his prison, if he would be visited by another believer from one of the churches or from Rome, or if he was going to be visited by the executioner. But he remained faithful. He remained faithful when remaining faithful was difficult. And he said, here I am with all this time chained up in Rome and decided to make something of it in whatever his circumstances, whatever his opportunities were. And he, so for Paul, he writes letters. He remained faithful when remaining faithful was difficult. And you think He's writing to people who are giving their lives during extraordinary adversity. When you think of all the Christians through all the centuries who gave their lives in the midst of extraordinary adversity, Paul had no idea what hung in the balance of him writing these letters. He's dictating letters. Sometimes he grabs it and writes it in his own hand. And he's just hoping that these letters are getting through. I wonder how many didn't make it. The odds, think of it, the odds against these letters 
written in Rome under house arrest would even get delivered, let alone survive the first century, let alone make it through all the centuries to today. I mean, think of it. With the papyrus that they were using, one bad rain, and there it went. And here we are today from one copy that was delivered to the Christ followers in Philippi. Think of the care that those Christ followers in Philippi had to give that thing and the work that they went through to copy it, to share it with the other churches in the area. And we're here in Sebawing reading it 2,000 years later. Paul had no idea what hung in the balance as he's feeling like he's rotting away in prison when he, there was so much that he felt he could be doing. And you know what it is, what hung in the balance? We did, didn't we? And it just makes me think, whatever the circumstance, in plenty or in want, you have no idea what or who hangs in the balance of your decisions to be faithful, your decision to keep going, your decision to return with gentleness, your decision to tackle a conflict or problem that's been festering for far too long. And the secret for Paul, and interestingly, look in verse 12. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content. That word secret isn't used in the Bible anywhere else, according to the scholars. But where it comes from is borrowing from the Roman cults, the secret cults, you know, that had the secret initiation rites. And Paul is saying, I have learned this secret. You know, and even some of the Christianity and other religions had this idea of secret knowledge. Like, we're going to create some secret knowledge, and if you don't know it, you're not in. So he's saying, I have learned the secret, and that's the word he used, the same one for the cults and the secret knowledge, of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. And we kind of think of content as like lounging and a lazy boy, but it had much more to do with being firm, being balanced. And he says, whatever the circumstances... I like how he says, you know, you, under, oftentimes when we hear circumstances, it, he didn't write there, um, I'm not saying, I've learned to be content under the circumstances, right? Under the circumstances, I'm doing all right. Or what, we hear that phrase, right? He didn't say, I, I heard a, a preacher uh, ask a, a gentleman in his church, an older gentleman, you know, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing all right under the circumstances. And the preacher said, well, what are you doing under them? Get out from under those circumstances. Paul's saying not under the circumstances. He's yeah. saying whatever the circumstances, because his circumstances are not on top of him. That's he, like when Dave talked about the lower story of my life and the upper story of my life. Some of us need to get out from under our circumstances because those mm -hmm. circumstances are going to weigh us down. Mm -hmm. We need to be content whatever our circumstances are. And that doesn't mean not being proactive. And I mean, here's Paul saying this from prison. 
not knowing if today's going to be the execution day. Well, and it doesn't mean not being uh, in pain or not being frustrated mm -hmm. or not, you know, whatever those circumstances bring. He's not Pollyanna-ing it and sugarcoating right. everything. Right. I think we forget where he's writing from, rotting away in this prison, taking it full advantage as he can for people to visit, for him to write letters, for him to pray, for him to witness to the guards. Um, he could not have b been free from pain. I mean, they don't give you... My back's a little sore from the bed that we're in over here in the lodge. From and the I'm bed. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Compare, you know, and here's Paul in the Roman jail. But I think that, that um, here's the secret. Paul, look in verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. But I, mine says I can do some things. <laughs> Does yours say everything? Seriously? Yeah, making sure you pay attention in these final moments. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, he's not saying I can do everything. That's not what Paul is saying. I can do everything. What he's saying is I can't do everything. I can only do everything. So you could put it this way. I can't. He can he can through me. I can't. He can. He can through me. Because Jesus says, you can do all things through me. Greater things than I have done will you do. Because I go to the Father. Because your Savior lives in you. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm single. I can't do this anymore. You're right. You can't, but he can, and he can through you. I'm sick and tired of, and you can fill in any number of blanks in my life. I'm just sick and tired of it. You're right. I can't. He can. He can through me. You're facing this unknown future. This is Paul writing, not knowing if the next door to open is going to be the final one for him. So when Paul says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength, that's exactly what he means. I can only do everything through him. I can only do anything through him. Whatever the situation you're facing is, and I'm not saying it's not legitimate and it's not difficult and it's not bad. I'm not saying, well, just compare yourself to Paul. I'm not saying anything about that. I'm saying Paul is the one giving us the words. I can't, but he can, and he can through me. Do you remember to live is Christ? That's where Paul gets that. I want to just let that soak in on me for a while, but we got to finish this book. In verse 15. 14. 14. On the other page. Oh, 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. <clears throat> See, he's not denying that he's got you know, all these troubles. He's not saying anything about that. It was good for, of you to share with me in these troubles. 
Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift. And Paul, if you read First and Second Thessalonians, Paul loved the Thessalonians too. I wonder if the Thessalonians' faith wasn't a result of what they were seeing, the empowerment of the Philippian church. As they sent money to him at Thessalonica. Yeah, support and, and prayers and, and all that. Just, he, I mean, he could support himself. Often he did. He was a tent maker, and he used that making tents. Isn't that funny to go, like, from a Pharisee to a tent maker? But tent making was what trade he was taught. And so he would use that to raise money as he went to these different churches. But sometimes he relied on the gifts from the other churches around mm -hmm. him. And Philippians was obviously one who he relied on. In those days, I'm sure he had to travel light. So he's saying, as when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. There's something about giving that he's saying. There's, there's some kind of, and it's not like banking, but there's some kind of crediting to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphrodites the gift you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I want to talk just a little bit about generosity. Because the most miserable people I know are the stingy ones. And I sometimes wonder, I don't know what everybody in our church gives, anything like that. But I've been led to believe that the people who are the squeakiest wheels and the biggest complainers are not the most generous people giving to the church. They're not bought in. They're not um, out to make a difference. It's so much easier just to complain than it is to be a part of a solution. And you've probably heard it said, you can't outgive God. And I want to I um, challenge us to look at um, what would be a next step for you and for me in our generosity. And I heard it explained this way. There's, um, you know, putting aside 10% tithe, which goes back to the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, they said, don't be limited by the law, you know, but thinking above the law. Um, and so not talking about amounts or percentages, but the idea of what would be a next step for you. And there's five kind of steps along this generosity journey. And the first one I've heard is called an initial giver. And I think this could be something that you encourage kids or grandkids to. Um, for many of us who are here, chances are you've understood a little bit about giving and about generosity. But imagine teaching the first behavior of generosity. It's one of the healthiest things for someone who, who needs help is to learn to be generous. It'd be one of the best things that you could help them do. Um, serving is a great way out of depression. Serving and being generous is a great way out of a lot of maladies. And being an initial giver um, 
imagine that being, it could be your first behavior, your first time doing this. An initial giver needs the act of giving something. They simply need the act of giving something. You've probably heard explained how the Dead Sea, nothing grows in it, it's dead, because it only receives water. It's the lowest spot on the planet. So there's nowhere for the water to go. There's no um, outflow, and, and thus it's dead. It's kind of a pretty um, powerful illustration for Stewardship Sundays, at least, <laughs> or Serving Sundays, whatever. But the, the first step for someone, as you're working with people, including yourself, you might say, oh, my gosh, I haven't ever given to this or to that. Or this person, I wonder if they give to anything. And so I w I, you might want to talk about what if you made an initial gift to something that God's doing? And that's an initial giver. The act of giving something can, could be one of the first steps toward health that someone needs. Secondly, f to go from an initial giver or something, someone who gives sporadically is, oh, I've got $20. And I'm not just talking about the church offering, but, you know, the right thing comes along. But to go from being just sort of a sporadic person to being a consistent giver. And it's not about the percentages. It's not about the amount. It's about giving something regularly. I'm going to give something weekly. I'm going to give something monthly. Whatever that would be. Um, I think the Philippians were on to something. The third step on your generosity journey from initial giver to consistent giver is to be an intentional giver. Now, to go from giving consistently where it may or may not impact anything else in your life, an intentional giver is giving in relationship to other financial priorities. For example, a lot of people don't give to God or to God's work or to missions or to their local church um, because they don't know what they're going to make. I'm a construction worker, I'm a builder, or I'm in sales. But the funny thing is, is that we we give $120 a month to Verizon without saying, I don't know, I'm, I, you know, I'm on commission, but, but we'll give very consistently for things like our cell phones without thinking about it or signing a mortgage note at a bank. Not that you don't think about that one, but it's um, even when we're not sure exactly how the money's coming in, we're ready to make that commitment. So being an intentional giver means giving in relationship to your other financial priorities. So um, you kind of think, you're now all of a sudden thinking, what I'm giving back to God in relation to what I'm giving to Verizon, what I'm giving to my cable bill, to what I'm giving to anything else. And that's the third step. So from an initial giver to a consistent giver to an intentional giver, fourth would be a sacrificial giver. And, uh, you know, for some folks, every so often you'll hear and say, ever since we were married, we tithe 10%. We don't even feel it anymore. And, and I guess I would say even tithing, if we don't feel it anymore, it's not changing us. And, and when we are giving and we are growing in our giving, we are in our generosity allowing God to work through us more and more and more. And a sacrificial giver is someone who gives to the Lord in such a way that it governs the way we give to other areas of our lives. It makes it easier to say, no, I'm not going to support that because I give at my church. Um, in tough in another thing is in a tough season, the things that you made a commitment to will be where you go. 
when you need it. What you give to when a tough season hits, that will tend to be where you go, where, where your giving is. When it comes to sacrificial giving, there's even the idea of honoring God with your car or your home so that if you hear a need and somebody needs to borrow your car or somebody needs to stay with you for a few days, that that's possible. That's honoring God with what, w- what we aren't giving God right now. And, and it's not like God's saying to give him 100% of our, our income or whatever, but we can honor God with 100% of what we have. And here's something that hit me so hard um, as we were looking at this at our church. Is God's less concerned about what you're giving? And he's more concerned about what you're not giving. Does that make sense? Can you honor God with 100% of all of it? He's less concerned about what we are giving. He's more concerned with what we're not giving and why. That kind of is the idea of sacrificial giving. And then fifth would be um, a legacy giver. And oftentimes when you hear the word legacy giver, you're thinking after you die, you know, something left in your will for, for a mission or for um, the church. But it's not really just post-life gifts. It's people who are giving, who are living life, who are strategizing with a longer story of their generosity in mind. They've got a bigger story, the longer story, like... Over a lifetime, I would love to be able to give X amount. And when you think about it, for us as Americans, um, even, even folks who make like $25,000 a year are in the top 8% of income earners globally. Like, I'm amazed that God has entrusted me with as much money as he has. And because and, I always think, oh, I don't have that much. Oh, I don't have that much. But that's this screwy mindset that I've got to get over. And the idea of what could I give over a lifetime or what could I give over a 20-year period? If I gave $10 a week, did one push-up a day, you know, adding on, something like that. Um, One thing that really helped us was um, we did that Financial Peace University with Dave Ramsey. And that really helped our marriage and it helped us um, financially to understand better. If you're like me and I'm embarrassed about how bad I am, I don't spend more than I make. I have plenty of people in my life to do that for me. But um, most, meaning my four kids. Right. That's who I meant. But what um, that really gave me some traction um, to understand better what I could do or what was possible. Well, no, you were embarrassed because you don't know what happens with I don't know. No, I just, I left that all up to Lee. Right. And that wasn't fair of me, but it was a way to avoid conflict. <laughs> and I would say, just curious, because random thoughts come in my head, how much do we spend on groceries? And this is when all the kids are there, and she'd be like, oh, fine, you just want to take it over? You don't think I'm doing a good job? Here. And I'd be like, ah. No, no okay, fair. That's all, I just was curious. No, you would say, why do we spend that much money on you didn't say how much. Oh. You made it seem like I just was like. <laughs> <laughs> That's why this Financial Peace University was really good. <laughs> the, the whole idea of this finances, it's, you know, of, of the church there at, at Philippi, and they, they had enough. 
people were giving to the church. But the church didn't just hold on to it, right? Because then the church used that money to send out. I think of where we'd be today if we didn't have people who were generous with Bayshore Camp. You know, and we wouldn't have it, right? Our children, our grandchildren wouldn't be here because of the generosity of others. And can we be generous knowing that God is going to meet all of our needs? Mm -hmm. God is going to meet all of our needs. And if God is an overflower, I mean, even the very act of creation, God wasn't lonely. God overflowed creation. God's Holy Spirit fills us up to overflowing, and out of our hearts flow streams of living water. That's the, when we are being generous, we are being more like God um, than in any other time of our lives. And so I just think that there's something powerful in there when Paul says, you sent me aid again and again, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Let's finish out this letter. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are here with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. I don't know if he was saying that tongue-in-cheek, like, I'm here with the big guy, or if, if I'm literally the servants, the... Um, guards, you know, the praetorium guard that he had to be chained up to, um, they literally sent greetings to these people. And, and came to love the Philippians because of what they saw Paul involved in. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with your spirit. Amen. And amen. Thank you so much for a great week. out of here. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your working in our lives, and we're grateful because we long for joy and we long for peace. And Philippians gives us an idea of how we can find peace. We can find peace in relationships, and we can find peace in our circumstances, and we can find peace and joy in, um, in others and in learning about you. And so I thank you for Paul and his example, and I thank you for the strong example that he was to that church at Philippi, to those young believers. So, Father God, would you make us um, examples as well? Would you make us so that we can say boldly, follow our example, be like me, do what I do. Make us that, not because we're cocky, not because we're overconfident, but because we've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and he's changed us and made us into the image of your son. So bless us today, not just so that we are blessed, but so that we can be a blessing to others and help us to see those around us who desperately need to know the message of the book of Philippians and help us to be joy makers and peacemakers and joy bringers. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, Matt and Alicia. Thank you. Thank you for having us.